0: Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Matthew Minky, a rancher from Texas. And what he really does is focus on being a profitable rancher, even if that means doing things a little differently or having a little uh, cows that maybe look a little differently. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and what he's doing down at his place here today. But Matthew, I really appreciate you joining me today and and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Thanks
1: for having me, Jared.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So maybe just as a way to get us started, uh, Tell me a little bit about where your operation is today, you know, your context to your, your, your location and, and what you do and enterprise mix that you've got down at, uh, at your business.
1: We are located 50 miles Northwest of Houston, Texas. Right. We're about 80 miles from the Gulf of So hot, humid environment, long growing season. You get about 45 inches of rainfall on average. As I've heard many people say before, average is just a setting on a dryer, or normal <laughs> is just a setting on a dryer. Like here that. is the difference. The last two years have been uh, abnormal, we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been here since the late 1800s uh, on this particular piece of property. I'm um, sixth generation. Our enterprise mix, our, our actual business, our core business is raising quartz quality square base we have uh, several hundred acres of hybrid bermuda grass that uh, we cultivate and focus on small squares for the horse market there's almost more horses than there are people in Waller County which that's mm. changing mm-hmm. every month as urban sprawl uh, continues on but that's our core business yeah. uh, our cattle cattle enterprise is has always been here we've always uh, been raising cattle my great grandfather that kind of assembled this acreage and and uh, and built the original business was definitely a stock raiser his his uh his uh letterhead said CA Minky stock raiser and cattle feeder hmm. was his uh, letterhead <laughs> and we we continue that on in all of the acreage that we can't raise hay on. Sure. And, uh, we, we are continuing to focus on making that more profitable. Our, our square bow business is profitable and we're thankful of that, but we're continuing to try to make our cattle. In
0: yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that the, uh, the hay is your primary business because the, the cattle is not just a small side thing either. It's a, it's a relatively seriously sized operation. Can you tell me a little more about where, where your cattle operation is as, as far as, a uh, what you're doing and, and what you, and then we'll, yeah, we'll dive more into how you are you working to make that more profitable too.
1: Sure. I actually refer to it as a grazing business and, and that's new. My, my, uh, my mindset mentality has been challenged and changed over the last several years. And so when people ask me about our cattle enterprise, I, I, I reference it or I try to reference it as a grazing business. That is what we're, our goal is to raise forage and grow animals for sale in one way, shape it. Yeah. And we have traditionally done that for 130, 40 plus years by being cow calves, by being stalkers, And, and my great grandfather was a feeder. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. Back around the turn of the century, when uh, there were small farmer feeders everywhere, I think that's what you consider him. He' a little different down here in the South. Um, you know, our feeding in the South around the turn of the century and beyond, in the teens and twenties, and you know, before large cafos and and what we think of the feeding industry now, we said a byproduct. That byproduct was from cotton production. So. The feeding that went on around here was basically just taking meal, cottonseed meal, and hulls, which were a almost a waste product. I don't; they're not exactly waste, but pretty much the uh, cotton mill is one of the oil. That was the thing that was the value to them. Meal and hulls were basically a byproduct, and so that's what my great grandfather fed animals and, and finished them and fattened them and uh, sent them by rail to Kansas City wow. and, and 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 other. other
0: yeah hmm. well, i like i like that philosophy though of of just you're a grazer or a grass uh a grazing enterprise grazing business as opposed to a cow calf or even a cattle or a livestock kind of enterprise that it, it, it when if you have your identity rolled up in a cow calf business you know i'm a cow guy i'm a calf cow calf guy or i'm a stalker guy it limits your willingness maybe to change or adapt as market signals tell you to do something differently and by focusing on being a grass producer and a grass business it leaves open wide, wide open opportunities to decide and it sounds like your family's done a bunch of that of shifting around from enterprise to enterprise probably based on economic uh, economics of the different enterprises or uh, or something else i imagine
1: yeah definitely the economics of the enterprise and And it's, you know, as of recent, you know, I've really had to uh, consider lots of different avenues, options. I just had to open my mind. You know, PCC has been important in doing that. And, uh, you know, talking to other producers in the PCC family has really been helpful and opened my eyes. And, uh, you know, started... I kind of joked. I used to think that we were low-cost producers growing up. I was yeah. a kid and a teacher and observing the way our family raised livestock. I thought we were low-cost operators. And while I was exposed to some other philosophies and other programs, I realized we were not as low-cost, certainly as low-cost as we could be. and you know, We certainly could do better. And that's been a little journey over the last, I would say, about four years.
0: Well, you know, that's a good spot to dive yeah. into, even. Let's tell me about where you were before or when you thought you were low input. What did that enterprise look like then? What were you doing? And when you started to realize maybe there's some things we can do more, what were some of those early shifts that you did make?
1: So I would say I want to take just a quick minute to maybe say in our geographical area, maybe some normal you know what the norms are Mm -hmm. i would say that it's normal to fall calf feed hay produce the hay yourself Mm -hmm. uh, and try to get the lowest cost wean late in order to wean a big calf and supplement and and do whatever is necessary to keep the cattle in shape uh, in in that situation we traditionally we were <laughs> i used to think we were spring calvers but we really weren't we were winter calves okay we we kept traditionally in december january and we generally understocked our pastures and we fed some hay Let's say it would have been a lot less hay than our neighbors
0: what it what what the what is the normals for your neighbors on hay feeding because it, it always blows my mind well I forget what the stat is, but I think someone has said, like, it's pretty much the average maybe to feed 120 days in almost every environment or something like that, which is odd. And it blows my mind being in Minnesota thinking, you know, obviously we got to, we got snow and ice, but then I hear in a place like yours, people are feeding hay still, and it blows my mind, but maybe that's different. What, what is the average in, in your area as far as time fed?
1: I would say that my neighbors would typically feed four months out of the year on average. There are a lot that would actually that's because they would they would stock for a good year and if you got a good year you'd have good growth early and the, the grass, even on a set stock situation the grass would eventually grow past the cattle or, or up and they would still be able to have stockpile and then would supplement some hay but in a bad year it would catch them and they might be feeding in August or September sure right. that would yeah. be a, 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 a we tried to we are always you know set stock we would try to under stock and I always when I observed you know the previous generation before me about on a good year 90 days kind of budget for a hundred days and if you could get by with 80 or 90 that, that'd be a good one. And, and then there'd be a protein supplement that would go along with that to, to, to balance out the stockpile. And the, the, the main thing, though, was calving in wintertime. And the object would be to wean the cattle in October so they had a couple of months to be dry and maybe gain a little body condition. But then you would ask them to have that calf. And even though you'd be feeding them, they would have to nurse that calf in the two worst months of the year, sure. which for us, either January and February. Then mm-hmm. you turn the bulls out on March 1st. Yeah. And hope the cattle were still in good enough body condition to, to breed. Sure. And that was the tradition that started down here when, there was a, when the screwworms were really uh, prevalent, even back in the 30s, 40s. I don't remember the year the screwworm was eradicated. I think it was in the 50s. But you used to to want to to calve in the winter so that uh, you wouldn't have that fly load. You wouldn't have that screw worm. Well, after the screw worm was eradicated, that tradition just continued on. That's what we do. We calve in the winter. We generally have mild winter. We don't worry about snow. and We don't worry about frozen calves around here. Mm -hmm. Um, We like to wean the big calf in October. Uh, with, with, you know, nine or, you know, eight, nine, almost 10 months on something. But so that,
0: that was kind of our, our,
1: our traditional way.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds like what I guess I'm used to hearing for sure. Like whether it's from the the screwworm, I guess I hadn't heard specifically that people were calving earlier for the screwworm. That's an interesting, I, I assume that the move towards earlier calving has always been just out of a desire to get a larger weaning weight in the fall. We're going to sell at the same time. So we'll do it for the larger weaning weight. And there's probably a combination of both, but I wonder, you mentioned most people are fall calvers. And so, you know, is that extra 120, 150 days of feed, is that as much because of they're calving and lactating in the off season as much as it is from a lack of forage or is it just a lack of quality feed when they needed it so they have to supplement ask me that question one more time sure so sorry if i kind of rambled but I, i i guess i'm kind of just wondering you mentioned like most people are feeding for you know four to five months and i thought i heard you say that most are average you know fall calvers and i guess i don't know your environment i imagine that at least up here the winter is kind of the dormant season so their cows are lactating in the time when there's maybe a, not an abundance of high quality feed even if there is adequate feed it's not enough quality to maintain a lactating cow and a growing calf so they have to supplement whether they're out of feed or not it's kind of just a calving season uh, in kind of a, a nutrient requirement demand that you feed more at that time of year
1: yeah I'm going to give an opinion and someone that hears this podcast is from my area might disagree with me or they, but I'm going to give an opinion. I think it is actually rooted in, uh, traditionally down here in the spring and summer, you know, we can get excess of Okay. and hay tradition was easy and cheap to make. And the motivation would be, even more of what you just alluded to earlier was if the earlier we can, the bigger we can get the calf. Mm-hmm. And we can we can have a nice mild time of the year in Nepal. Yeah. Hay is easy to bail. It's cheap. And you know, again, we're kind of looking at traditions that were started 30, 40, and 50 now years ago. Yeah. That yeah. are just continuing on. Yeah. Um, even though the economic uh, ramifications have certainly changed. Yeah. Our labor costs, our fuel, all the things that we 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 talk about, and we don't need to, you know, rehash. Yeah. But I would—that's my opinion as to why a lot of people are fall calvers. Sure, we were winter calvers because we didn't want to feed as much hay, but we still wanted to calve in when we didn't have that fly load, didn't have that screw arm issue. And, and then again, even after that was eradicated, I, I think that that uh, that tradition just kind of continued on. Yeah. And I think there's another part too. As I've been uh, as I've been making changes, I have you know, and in, in, in a way, upsetting the apple cart when the apples are all rolling around, <laughs> they <laughs> they sometimes get a little hard to pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we here have always. Well, that's what I say always. I say, you know, since the turn of the last century, have uh, been crossbreeding with Boss Indicus cattle. Uh, and and also, once we got away from the indigenous cattle, we had Herefords and, and Boss Indicus cattle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, needing the heat tolerance, insect and disease resistance, and, and all of those uh, qualities from Boss Indicus cattle that we really needed that also comes along with actually trying to remember where I was driving with that. Oh (laughs) yeah. So if you have, if you've got crossbred cattle, but you have Hereford bulls and particularly later over the last 30 and 40 years, we went to crossbreeding with Angus bulls. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Bulls need to be breeding in the springtime of the year when the temperatures are mild. Sure. Sure. Black bull in July in our environment is 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 handicapped. He is he he is he's handicapped, and we 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 used to kind of uh, used to kind of uh, I I don't want to call it a joke, but it was just kind of a a thing we used to say. Why do we need to pull the bulls? You know, we turn them out in March. (laughs) Sure. So, we have a 90 day calving season. Well, why do we need to pull them? They're not doing anything, yeah. After, after June 30th, there, so let's just leave them. It's just a hassle. Yeah. So, breeding in March, April, May, yeah, for December, January, February, calving. sure,
0: yeah. No, that makes sense. So it's, uh, you mentioned their, your opinions, but they all seem pretty logical to me. But you know, I was just interested in, you know, the, it just got me thinking. I, I think you were really spot on with talking about the, the tradition and why people are just doing what made sense. They continue to do what they've always done. And at one point, it made a lot of sense. And what, you know, if, if somebody says, well, you know, why do you feed hay X amount of time? It's like, well, because we don't have enough grass for, you know, to hurry, we don't have enough grass to to not feed hay or because the environment says we can't feed hay or whatever. Well, in reality you probably could. You might just be overstocked or something, but it's because you've always done it that way and you never tried anything different. And you know, there's a lot that goes into uh man, there's so many different nuances of the cattle business to consider from screw worms to uh to ideal breeding windows to ideal calving windows. I don't know. It's a it's a lot to to try and dive into uh the reasoning behind why people do that. So I won't ask you anymore why your neighbors do what they're doing. That's a pretty unfair question to try and ask you, but, um, getting back into your story, go ahead. What's that? Well, It it is
1: because it helps, you know, with, you know, when we visit with our neighbors or we see our neighbors, we drive down the road, you know, that's our environment. And that influences uh, us. It influences us, you know, kind of, I, I guess maybe I'll use the word peer pressure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the fear of being different can come into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's what you, that's your frame of reference and that's your context, that's what you've always known and always seen, you can end up thinking, well, that's just the way we do it. I mean, every if everybody's doing it this way, there's got to be a reason. That, yeah. that mentality can come.
0: Yeah, yeah herd herd mentality way of thinking for sure and hey, uh there you go. Yeah. That in there. yeah so uh um you used to cab then in december january february for reasons you've discussed uh kind of to gather more context on where you were not necessarily the neighbors and stuff but where you were what were you what was your genetic base at that time uh, as far as cow herd, you mentioned breeding. What were you breeding to as far as bulls? What was your marketing? Were you still at this time? This is pre five years ago. It sounds like a lot of these changes maybe came in the last four years or so. If, correct me if I'm wrong. But pri- prior to that, where were what were you uh, doing as far as a cow-calf enterprise and marketing of those those calves? Well, what what our cow base would have been a Brahman, Erford, Cross,
1: times Black Angus. And then also we had what I refer to as a Brangus cross herd, which would have been, you know, anything from quarter Brahman to little, you know, three-eighths Brahman and Hereford. You know, you'd have some black baldies with a, with a little bit of leather, a little bit of ear, a little bit of navel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We would go back with Brangus on them again. And we would typically precondition, wean all our calves, and market them in truckload lots uh you know at with 60 days weaning or in uh, 60 to 75 days weaning sure. I, I had also done some just retention of steers and then graze the steers particularly the following season mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we would develop peppers kind of the same way we would precondition them for 60 days on feed all this is on feed and uh, and then you know rebreed those. but that that was a kind of our genetic base, sure. Okay. And, uh, that's kind of originally how I found PCC was in in learning about and and realizing that thirty years of of Brahmin herford and Angus breeding, keep in mind, I mean, the the Brahmin and Hereford goes back a hundred and something years, but the 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 Angus uh, for a terminal cross, probably about the last thirty years. Sure, really producing very large and very framey cows. Yeah, uh, I, and and it's kind of like that frog in the kettle. Uh, you know, when it's nice and warm, and that slowly over time the heat gets turned up, you don't realize it. You don't see it. Yeah. I'm forty-seven years old, and I've been watching these cattle since I was seven. You know, I mean, just use that. For example paying attention for 40 years Mm -hmm. and and it was so slow i didn't realize how big the cattle were and and then in doing the investigation and learning about more efficient cows and frame size and and cow weight Mm the factor of that i i said you know we need to try to reduce the frame size on these females Mm -hmm. i i had some cattle that were even to excess they were a herd of cattle that I bought in order to get the lease, you know, I didn't yep. raise I, sure. I bought to get the lease, and I'm talking about some six and a half, seven, seven and a half frame cows, and I'm like, these things are huge, and the fertility was terrible. Yeah, and then I started real, you know, hey, frame size is correlated to fertility, later maturing, and all of those things that and, and you know, kind of at the same time, simultaneously, we're kind of learning the PCC philosophy. Sure. I'm realizing that I'm the anti PCC program around here. (laughs) And, um, the, the original idea was to buy some lower frame bulls to breed my frame size down. That was kind of a a direction that we were trying to go Starting about that. That was somewhere about three to four years ago. Sure. And I, and I, and I, actually before finding PCC i had found the south Pole breed and the, the very first new bulls I bought were some south Pole bulls sure uh, but as I was sourcing those and doing my research i, I came across the heat tolerant
0: composites that yeah.
1: Pcc uses and so i have i have some of those
0: okay well I'll just throw out for the listener here I didn't even realize you were using PCC genetics and so I appreciate all the plugs and I'm glad that <laughs> that came out but I didn't even realize you were and uh that you did so that's uh that's that's a good uh a good good plug for for PCC but so you decided to start making those switch towards lower input using South Pole and some of these heat tolerant genetics and stuff uh Let's just carry on right from there. Three years ago, now you're relatively new into this. What have you? Uh, what do you? What do you think of them? What are you starting? I assume what you did then was keep keep all your heifers out of just like those uh, those crossbreds, and, and you're starting to see some of them move into production now.
1: Yes, and and keep
0: in keep in mind that we're also
1: simultaneously changing our calving season, and simultaneously starting management intensive grazing or adaptive multi-padded grazing all at the same time and uh, i had actually started with the grazing just a little bit before we started with genetic consideration and so i was learning about learning about electric fence learning about wire training cattle and being able to utilize different areas of my pasture differently you know went to a soil health academy in 2021 and that definitely spurred me on to, to get more intensive and, and, and make a significant ranch investment
2: mm-hmm. in
1: water and fence development. Went to a ranching for profit in late 2022, Continue to just reinforce that. This is, a, this is kind of a big storm that's coming from four or five different directions. Back, backing up to your original question, we're changing the genetics. We're also changing the calving season yeah. and trying to do more intensive grazing all at the same time. Yeah. And I, I hate to admit this, but it was a huge wreck. Really? But it was a wonderful learning experience. It's easy to talk about it now that I think I'm on the back side of it. Sure. I, I also learned about how unadapted, well, that's actually. Well, I would still say that. I had a lot of unadapted animals. I had a lot of animals that did not respond very well. I had a lot of animals that did, though. There were some early successes that were were really helpful. One of them was changing that calving season. Okay. Changing that calving season from calving in December, January, and I started to do a March-April. And I, I actually uh, remember discussing with Kid about this, at a sale kind of throwing this out there and you know him him telling me you need a cabin may and i said i get it but i'm not sure i i had to, I, I really struggled with what the correct month the cab was in because mm-hmm. we are in a southern environment we have fewer frost that you know we have more frost free days and our grass comes out earlier in the year in general So I just said, I'm going to try March 1st, see what happens. And I also sat and asked myself, Matthew, what are the two most difficult months of the year for the cow? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I said, well, some years it's these two and some years it's that two. But I came to the conclusion that I think on average, January and February are the two most difficult months of the year. And so I want my cows dry those two months. Yeah, that made all the difference on the grazing. The previous year, when I was kind of in in you know when you when you decide to change your calving season, you don't get the results right away. Yeah, you you can you can turn the bulls out later, but you still have to deal with the calves from the previous breeding season. Sure, and and that's where I put a lot of the blame and the burden on me for the wreck. Okay, because I'm no to low input, but I was. Still Still dealing with the old system, and so sure. here I am trying to go low, but I've still got calves hitting the ground in January, February. Cows got thin; they didn't breed back so well. But the next year, when we had the bulls turned out in June or March and April calving, they were dry in January. They did great. Okay, and I, I I the entire breeding season with no
0: hay. Sure sure that was Uh grazing and supplemental okay so i'm glad you brought up the wreck and and i want to maybe if you you know you said you don't like to talk about it but i think that's good to hear because i do think sometimes people jump into things maybe without fully understanding or knowing what's the best things to do or something and and they may end up with a wreck and some people are more able to withstand a wreck than others But uh, I guess having gone through it now, talking to somebody who's maybe in a similar position to you, who's thinking about wanting to change their grazing management, wanting to change their calving window, and wanting to change their genetics, uh, their genetic base, would you do it all at once? Would you do one thing before another? Uh, How would you have gone back and done it differently? All right. Now you
1: really put me on the spot. I, I I have great mentors and collaborators and consultants. That that I have uh, employed to help me on this journey. Alan Williams is one of them. Burke Tikert is another. Jim wow. Garrish is another.
0: Wow. And the, those it, are some of the top names in the in the consultant world. Yeah, that should be a great, <laughs> a great advisory board.
1: This is nothing negative about Burke. Burke, his philosophy was use the cows you have because you know what you have. Sure. Select the right bulls. Change your genetics and change your calving season, and call the fall fallout. And he did warn me. He said, "Matthew, there's going to be a shock to the system." And you know, yeah. It, in all fairness, he warned me that there could be a huge shock to the system. And again, right. I I also thought part of this was was my mismanagement. If I you asked if I had it to do over again,
0: yeah. That's what I want to hear. Well, and yeah. Knowing what I know now,
1: I believe I would have sold the whole cow herd and bought a different. Sure. And that, that might rub feathers and they might disagree with me. But, you know, I now I've got the hindsight. And and, and in essence, Jared, <laughs> that's what's happened. <laughs> you know, I've got kind of myself out of business. Yeah. And in some ways, I think it's good It's a tuition that you have to pay of learning and also it's accelerated the change.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I do have cattle that have made it through the shock and have survived and have read back and are producing a hand not a lot, but a (laughs) handful. Yeah. I want their genetics in my herd. But I've had to shift and change and I've had to find uh, a source for more adapted a cattle that are adapted to my environment. And I've also learned a lot about my environment and 15 or 20 lessons. We may not have time to
0: go through. No. But well,
1: that, that's that was the question the question ad- adequately.
0: Yes. No, that's that's good to know. And and the the selling the cow herd thing too, I'm wondering if you experienced that from a financial perspective. Obviously there was a fallout and that's a pretty big financial hit. But uh i was asked this question kind of a similar question recently on moving cow herd and uh and and i thought to an example that someone gave me from here in minnesota who went from a like a february calving to a may calving herd and and they made the decision to just hold that herd back three or four months and what they essentially did was depreciate their cows by several hundred dollars per cow because cows calving in january february march are more ideal to most cow calf producers than the ones calving in may which are undervalued to those earlier calving cows and so they not only maybe had i don't think they had the 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 shock to the cows and the, maybe the fertility issues that or the breed back issues that it sounds like your your cattle had in your environment but they had a pretty big financial hit uh, and just the loss of value they would have been better off selling those overvalued early calving cows and buying back even if they were the same type and not the right type yet, but buying back a later calving cow, uh, just for the value difference there.
1: I would agree with that scenario you just put forward. I would also say, and again, this is my opinion. In my market, there are not enough discriminating buyers. When you can around here, if you go to a sale barn uh, or just you know, even maybe buying some cattle in the country, when the calving season is, to me, doesn't make as big a difference as it does in other parts of the country. Okay. okay. And maybe that's because of our long growing season. And, you know, definitely a, a, a bred cow is worth more than an open cow, mm-hmm. for sure. Someone's not necessarily going to pay you uh, a premium for a long bred cow versus a short bred cow, you know, because of their particular calving that's what I've observed over sure. years of just observing barn and you know female sales country sales around here sure but but I would say and, I, and and this this is my opinion about why a lot of the cattle fell out. I was counting on you know because you think, okay well they're not, they're used to calving in December and then we want them to breed back in March. well now in the new system, They're going to get all the way to June before we ask them to get bread. Yeah. So they're going to have the best grazing of the year. Yeah. And that was my thought process. But I am convinced that that additional nutrition, that additional, you know, good grazing that that cow got and that extra, I think she gives most of it to the cat. Okay. She doesn't give it to herself. If sure. you've pulled a cow down in the winter, which I did because I had calves, you know, I had wet cows in the two worst months of the year, and I and I I fed like normal. I didn't I didn't feed anymore, and then when the good grazing came, the cows did not increase in body condition. They gave it to their calves, sure, and they were not. So. Hmm. And then I do also think. Sometimes it's interrupting the natural cycle of cow that probably had something to do with it. I don't know what percent, but you sure. know, cows that have been in the system for you know, just say eight, maybe eight, nice eight nine year old cow, an eight nine year old Braford cow is in the prime of her life. Mm-hmm. But she's been her schedule, and then you change that by ninety days, and I think that has an effect.
0: Sure. So uh, just to clarify, then going back, what you would probably do or what you might advise someone in a similar situation would be to uh, to sell and, and look for the right type of cow to replace her with from the start, not try to transition an existing herd to a different type of cattle through you know, genetic changes, but you'd rather just kind of jump to the, the finished project if you can find the cows.
1: Yes. Or if I had it to do over again. That first year, I would have fed those cows and said, "Look, is the price of changing? I am th- those cattle starting in uh, November, December. Forest quality going gone down. We're going to feed you, girls, and we're going to keep you in excellent body condition with your calf. Not let you lose any condition over this winter. Then we're going to get you transition. Then next winter is when we're going to put the pressure." Up. Sure. Yeah, that would be okay. the only other avenue I would. I don't want to use the word baby, but you yeah. just got to give the cow what she needs. Yeah, She's got to give her what she needs and help her through that transition.
0: Yeah, and do you think you can even ever fully expect that type of cow? I mean, you talked seven, eight frame cows. I don't know what those cow weights were, but do you think it, it to some extent maybe it's not even? Don't ever expect to treat those cows. You know, like low input cows. They're just not low input cows. But breed them to low input genetics, and then start you know changing the program for their offspring. And as you can replace them, hopefully rapidly, keep them a ton of heifers back. You know, it's treat. It's maybe start treating those next females, the next uh, in line, a little differently. Or, or do you think that you can actually, in time, change those cows' program as well?
1: I'm, I'm sure there's a percentage. There's a percentage that you cannot change. Yeah. And then I think there is a percentage that you can change. Sure. In general, those large-frame, high-maintenance cows, and, and, and again, we saw the trends. The cattle that were from our herd and that we raised under, quote-unquote, what we thought was a low-input system, mm-hmm. they fared better. And the cattle that I bought to get the lease, they fell out at a higher rate. Yeah, sure. So in general, yeah. Yeah. larger-frame cow fell out faster.
2: Okay.
0: Okay. No. Yeah. And, and I'm just curious thinking through kind of the economics of this again, is there anything different too? In that, you know, obviously you get it. Well, like to your point about bait and not baiting them, but you know, give them what they need. You take a pretty big economic hit, moving a bred cow to an open cow and then trying to, you know, sell an open cow. That's a pretty big depreciation loss as opposed to, you know, just keeping them bred, even if it costs you a little more and moving them down the line. <laughs> As a bread cow, you can still yeah. sell them, but you, you don't take quite the financial hit. And I would
1: also, if I would have done it different, I don't know if it would have made, well, you know, it might've made a difference. I stuck to a strict 60 day breeding season. Sure. And what I probably should done was, uh, followed Burke's advice and done long breeding season, short calving season. Yeah. Just left the bulls out there. Mm-hmm. And then... Take the late breeding cows and and market them, yeah. and, and and of course the, here's hindsight twenty twenty. So then, uh, you know how how this deal worked out when we when we palpated in October and had all these open cows. I actually made a deal with a buyer. They were they were middle aged cows. They, yeah. they 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 didn't need to go to the packer, mm-hmm. and I did negotiate a pretty good price for the opens. Yeah, he took them. In October, turned the bull out with them, ninety percent conception. Yep, they all bred, uh, and 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 it got them out of my out of out of my system, and you know made more replacements.
0: Yep, yep. No, it, well, that's that's a great point too. Is especially like you mentioned, if the calving the date of calving doesn't affect price so much, there's no reason you couldn't alternatively you know, have turned the bulls out yourself and sold them as bred a couple months later or something if you had the grass or whatnot, but. I, I couldn't because I did not have the
1: forage. Sure. If I would have had the forage, I would have kept them, yeah. and turned them into fall. But I just didn't have forage and I was not going to feed them. That was also yeah. during that time where I was really I was going hardcore on grazing. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to, hey, we're going to, we're going to keep the number of cows that we can graze, not feed hay. Mm-hmm. And so I sold the Sure.
0: Yep. Makes sense. And I appreciate you indulging me on your, you know, like, you're uh kind of if you could do it again because obviously you can't but there's a lot of people out there listening who might be in that stage and i think there's value to you know reflecting on on past mistakes or learning learning opportunities is uh <laughs> is the the good term to call it so i appreciate you you following that that trail uh trail with me cool. uh, for a little bit
1: benefit from the tuition that i pay. i'd
0: be, yes. be
1: happy for, for them to benefit because that would be two of us or three of us or however many yeah and again i qualify by saying this this was my environment my genetics yeah by no means is this a blanket statement Mm -hmm. for anyone and everyone
0: yeah no no that's that's exactly that's exactly right and yeah there's there's going to be changes to everybody's context but uh but i appreciate you sharing that um I'm trying to decide if i want to jump into one of these other things changes you made or uh, or stay on the genetic line a little bit we'll just stay i guess on this trail for a little bit longer here before i jump into your grazing management uh that i want to talk about but what have you seen since then then i guess as far as you're now 3 years you should have some calves on the ground from calves uh, like from you know your your crossbred to to a low input south pole or pcc type genetic you should have some you know some offspring you're starting to see results from that what have you what have you found so we have seen that and keep
1: in mind that we in essence have two herds we have what we call the main mob which is all of the cows regardless of age and all of the replacement Heifers, the H ones, mm-hmm. they graze together, and I have a. Then I have another herd that is set stock. Okay. It, it's just a, what I call the conventional herd set stock, but still bred the same bulls. Sure, uh, our conventional set stock herd um, has a, probably some of my best soil, best ground. Even though it's a, it's a lease property, it's got good soil, good grazing. Good shade, good water,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and I and I keep it relatively understocked for set stock. Okay, I do feed hay in the winter, but it's very minimal, and I don't have to feed protein because there's enough enough volunteer winter annuals that balance my diet. All I have to really do over there is provide some additional dry matter in the form of you know. Nothing special hay. Mm-hmm. So the hay is still a supplement, not a sub, not quite a substitute. It's close. But it's, yeah. it's not quite a substitute. The main mob, that is on uh, what we refer to as the coastal prairie. And it is sandy. It is less mineral rich. It is uh, – there's no shade. There are no trees, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, the only good thing about it is there's a lot of acres. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of it. And the the reason I'm explaining this is because I've got some data that will kind of correspond to the way that the cattle were treated. So you can definitely see in the heifer offspring you can see the smaller frame taking effect even after one generation. Sure. It was interesting that it wasn't every calf. Hmm. And of course, you don't know exactly which, you know, which, I mean, once you wean all your heifers and all your steers, you don't know who the dams are. and You can sure. see them when they're out there. Yeah. Or look. So it was interesting to see wow, look at that. Look at that heifer right there. She is definitely reduced frame.
2: Yeah.
1: And look, she's got that hair coat. And she's definitely got. She's deeper. She's got better spring of rib and and she looks like the bulls that we're buying, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean that from a gender aspect, but she's got those kind of attributes. Uh, but then there'd be other ones that look just like the damn. You know, just big old tall, Frankie. <laughs> you know. You get a little bit. Of that. But what I did like was so now I've gotten to the next generation where I actually have exposed those heifers. For the first time, and and this is in in the main mob, they would have been weaned on grass and then put back with the herd, and they were asked to live just like a cow. The, the heifer development was no hay, protein supplement, and we we supplement protein as per the manure. We watch the manure. We, we move cattle every day, so we're there. We're there. Yeah. We look at their manure. As the manure stacks, we add protein okay. to bring it back. To a, 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 actually, I, I do to 80% consistency. If 80% of my manure looks good, that's enough protein. Sure. If it's okay. less protein, if, it, if it's getting worse, we add.
2: Yeah.
0: And then, of course, if it's getting better, we do that. But those heifers were asked to, to winter like a cow. And those were three-quarter blood type, low-input type cows?
1: Those were actually just half bloods.
0: Okay. Those okay. were first generation.
1: Sure. And I bred back to the same type of bulls. And in that in that mob, those were forty seven percent conception. And I know that may sound low, but I was actually very, very pleased for as little money as I had in those heifers. Okay. Almost half of them bred and they're and they're their open heifer mates, they made good. Mm, Very yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. Now, over on the stock, to compare, um, where I felt in in, in, in in a lot of essence, the conditions are actually a little easier. They've got shade being, being a huge component of it. Those bred, those bred at 75%. And
0: those heifers were treated how?
1: They were treated the same. Well, not the same. They were the they were from the herd. I mean, they wintered like a cow. The only difference is they were just being supplemented dry matter, and they, they got their protein from the winter animals. And I do think the fact there was a lot of shade there. This summer was terrible. Yeah. This, is, this is the second-worst summer in my lifetime. I actually mm-hmm. had my wife look it up and make sure 45 days of triple digit temperature. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's when I hear things like that, I it, think, you know, maybe Minnesota ain't so bad. <laughs>
1: extremely hot and extremely dry. And I also think that that exaggerated the conditions of lack of shade. So if you if you if you have shade and it's eighty, really big deal. Mm-hmm. But if you if it's a hundred four and you have shade versus you don't have shade. Yeah. You get where I'm driving.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So yeah. happy with 75 percent breed up on those heifers. I'm happy with the 47 percent on on the main mob.
0: What was your typical heifer development program? My
1: my conventional would be wean the heifers for at least 60 days on feed. Yeah, uh, you know, typical commodity preconditioning regimen and and then turn them out uh, on grass and ask them to breed and, and kind of used to think and we're we're doing so good because we those those heifers are probably going to be 75 to 100 pounds heavier than on a grass based system yeah. because we fed them yeah. they're going to be <laughs> almost 56 75 and they ought to breed up and they bred up at 60 65%. Really? Wow. With for the head more in them. Wow. Is that, is that kind of perspective? Put $200 yes. ahead in them. You get 20, 18% more.
0: But for, man, for $200 ahead,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't think that sense.
0: No, no, especially when you consider like that you, you put $200 ahead. Exactly. Well, yeah. You put $200 ahead into 100% of the heifers more, but only got an right. additional 12 or 13% more bread. And if you if you attribute the cost of those one hundred percent of the herd just to the thirteen percent additional, you know, going from the forty seven to the sixty percent, you know, no way were those heifers profitable. You'd have been better off just selling those and 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 keeping the ones that were bred. And uh no, that that's a uh, that is very uh, interesting. And I think that I mean that's one of the the coolest things of that model is when you can develop heifers so cheaply that they become a prop. It's essentially just a profitable backgrounding model. Plus maybe a few of them turn into profitable heifers too, you know?
1: <laughs> yes. Do, do, do I want to do better? Yes. Do I think we're going to do better with more adaptive genetics? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. You know uh what Alan Williams uh, says, you know, if you're getting more than 50, 55% breed up on your heifers, you're feeding them too much.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: you know. Yep. you may hear this and correct me and say, "No, I said sixty percent." But you get the point. It's it's yes. somewhere. In there.
0: Yep. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and especially if did you give every heifer a chance, or did you uh, select heifers out of that group? Or
1: yeah, I did not call one, even the smallest heifer. So so there were there were a lot of heifers in there that were late born yeah. that were probably never going to breed. That's included. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, this is kind of getting in a little bit more detail, but I think that also the reason why I had such a better breed up on the conventional versus the my main mob is the protein supplement. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we supplement protein with cottonseed cubes. Mm-hmm. And we feed three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And although I had calculated the weight of the cows, and the weight of the yearling heifers, and so many pounds per head per day, and I was adjusting based on manure, I still think that there is a factor of competition for the supplement, and a, a prone middle-aged cow is going to be able to compete more for sure. those, those on the ground, and I think that that cl- group of heifers was probably shorted protein, not because I didn't provide it. They were not able to compete with the cows. Whereas over in the conventional, they were grazing their protein and it was always available. And those those heifers just they they were fifty to hundred pounds heavier. They were slick. They looked better in the winter, and of course they looked better in the spring. And and they bred up. So here's how I plan on fixing that for this next grazing season. I'm leaving the main mob, I'm leaving the protein supplement of cottonseed cubes. We're going to try apple cider vinegar. And I'm dosing it in their water so that every equal people access all the time because they're, in essence, drinking
0: their supplement. Yeah, well, that'll be interesting to see how that goes up or how that affects things and how, you you know, these bred heifers now, their offspring will be 75%, uh, this type of low input uh, genetics. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how this progresses. It's cool to to catch you here at the beginning of this trial, and we'll have to for sure have you come on again and kind of update us and follow the journey as you experience uh, what this looks like on, on your ranch. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, man you know we're coming up on an hour already here uh it's always interesting (laughs) figuring out where to go from here because i want to dive into your grazing management i'm wondering if we should even just do another one but let's let's just go there let's dive into your grazing management a little bit you talked about your calving window go ahead sorry matthew i just said
1: you go right ahead i've got plenty
0: of time okay yeah well let's let's do that then uh into your grazing management changes uh that Before we dive into Matthew's grazing management changes, I wanna give a quick shout out to -to Barn2Door. Barn2Door is an all-in-one solution for farmers selling direct to consumer. My wife and I actually began using them now over three years ago, and it makes it easy for us to manage all of our direct sales, both online and in person. Barn2Door has helped us to increase our sales for our farm business, and if you are looking to build a successful farm business with best-in-class training and support, I'd encourage you to check out Barn to Door. You can go to wwwbarntodoorcom forward slash herdquitter where you can learn more about our success. And if you choose to sign up, you'll get access to a free academy session. And that's a $99 value. Again, that's wwwbarntodoorcom forward slash herdquitter. And you can find that link in the show notes to this episode. But now we'll dive back into our conversation with Matthew and learn a little bit more about his grazing management changes that you've made over the last 4 years as well. What did you what did what did you start with? What have you come to? What works, what doesn't? What do you yeah, what are you learning?
1: We started by learning about electric fence and I originally used it to graze some of my hay fields like at the end of the year they really weren't good enough to to make hay you know for a last cutting. So sure. it's kind of like a half a cutting. Yeah. i didn't want to run the equipment over but, well we can utilize this forage and so we set up polywire and we got got some water out there kind of all temporary kind of stuff and i certainly learned a lot about the wrong way to graze animals uh, which was well, you put them in a paddock and you just go out there and when you think they've eaten enough move them yeah. and then and then you put them there and then ah oh, i say they've eaten enough and you move them again but that was more about learning how to get them to respect hot wire learning that we could move them that very quickly as we were building out our grazing units, uh, turned into more intensive management, uh, getting some single strand, high tensile, uh, making some what I, what we, we call them corridors. So like on our, on our grazing units, if you'll just imagine a rectangle there, They're not perfect rectangles, but the listener would just be able to say it's a single strand hot wire right down the middle and a two inch water line right down the middle. And there's a water point every five. Then, then we went every five hundred. Yeah, every five hundred feet, wherever there's a water point, we have a single strand going perpendicular, creating what we call main divisions. So on average, those divisions are anywhere from 12 to 18 acres. Then we would subdivide with poly, depending on and the size of the mob. We could either cut them in half, we cut them in thirds, we cut them in fourths. And that all kind of coincided with that year I was telling you about where we finally had dry cows in the winter and we were able to hone in exactly how much we needed to allocate them for a day. And we got in the rhythm of daily moves. And the cow really responded well and they got used to moving and we got paddock size worked out correctly. We're supplementing and we wintered those cows very effectively and very cheaply. I actually had in February, the first week of February, I had two different people come out to help me body condition, score the cows Mm -hmm. because you kind of need a third party If you own the cows and you're looking at them, you're probably going to call them a, a half or a body condition score better than they really are, just because they're your cow. Get yeah. somebody else out there, and, and we all agreed that we had wintered those cows and they were all in a body condition score of five. Wow, I, I took that as a as a success. Yeah, and and we just continue to try to hone that in. We're continuing to try to increase our density. We're still learning about what to do during the growing season. I actually think it's easier in the dormant season here sure. for, for learning. Because once yeah. the plant is dormant, I'm not particularly worried about rest. Sure. I, I, I don't want to take it all the way to the ground. Yeah. But I want to, to consume as much of that dry matter as possible. I want to supplement them protein and just maintain their body. And usually if you go through three or four days, you can guess at paddock size, mm-hmm. you know. And then three or four, days, you can have it honed in and go. Okay, this is where we need to be on paddock size. Now let's build out some paddocks and let's that's wrong. let's roll. Yeah. Let's rotate. Sure.
0: The challenge is in the grazing season. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, for sure. I'm, I'm curious. So if I'm understanding you, right. So yeah, you've got these essentially semi-permanent, like you're not moving these fences really uh, 18 roughly acre paddocks. Um, and then you subdivide those further and they back graze to water over, over that. Well, how, what's the time roughly how often are you moving? Uh, what's the, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, cattle are on the grass have access to the grass you know how long before they're moved off i guess
1: well we move every 24 hours we move every day and we we don't back graze more than four days so okay. with the mob the most you could subdivide any paddock is four times a lot of them are some of them are just two sure so so the back grazing gets more than four days
0: okay okay that that's uh that's helpful and then i'm i'm always curious uh, people beginning this i've heard of and i've seen places where some folks are you know super heavy on the infrastructure the permanent infrastructure and they say they go back and they wish gosh i wish i had maybe just you know did a couple of these main raceways with with wire and and everything else i do with poly or some people who do everything entirely with poly almost and and portable water line and you know different levels of wish you know of, of investment into infrastructure and everybody has a different maybe perspective on what's best uh having done what you did i like your kind of you got your semi-permanent larger paddocks that you subdivide with poly but what was your thought was that approximately right do you wish you had gone further with more permanent do you wish you had backed off on the permanent and done more with poly for more adaptability where where do you fall in that i will
1: say that i think we
0: got pretty close
1: okay the the
0: first shot
1: never going to be perfect I will say that I did spend a lot of time before I built. And, and I also, this is where Jim comes in. I sent my design to Jim and asked mm. him to look it over for me. Yeah. And and he didn't he didn't see any problems with it. Um it was pretty logical. The the biggest challenge we have is although our units are rectangular, there are there there are a couple of creeks kind of dry creeks that flow through them and and create odd shapes and and create issues for cattle access and it actually we in general we fenced off those creeks because all those years of set stock have caused a lot of erosion and 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 other problems and what I wanted to do was to, I wanted to fence those dry creeks off I still want to graze them what I want to do is I want to rest them almost all year. And then I, I will turn the cattle into the creek way. It becomes a paddock. Yeah. For once, maybe twice max. But generally, sure. just one or two days a year, the cattle get to go and graze the creek way, and and then the rest of the year they're off of it. That created a lot of odd-shaped paddocks. Yep. Sure. I will say we've made the main corridors, in other words, splitting the the units right down the middle with water in one line, and for a few months we made all of the main divisions with poly, mm-hmm. and at, and that took a long time. That was uh, that was starting to turn into three or four days a week of poly, mm-hmm. okay. you know, trying to stay ahead of the hurdle. But once yeah. we'd done that for a few months, we agreed, hey, this this is going to work. Let's let's go ahead and make these major subdivisions with single strand high tensile. And then that took our daily workload from three or four days a week down yeah. to a half a day to one day a week. Yeah. yeah. You
2: know,
1: on, on 500 cow. Yeah. And
0: that, five, and that was you said days. on a 500 cow, pattern uh, unit. Wow. Yeah. 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 We
1: have a product not completely subdivided, and I've found that to be an asset. Uh, Here's an example that your listeners may or may not grasp. Uh,
0: Well, a lot of them
1: probably will. Uh, Although this is sandy sandy country, and and in most of the units they are particularly well drained, but in the winter when you get 10 inches of rain in 10 days you cannot have high stock density and I was thankful that I had some larger paddocks that were not permanently subdivided because we got to a point last year where we had to just move the cattle into a big paddock and leave them set stock for two weeks sure. I couldn't daily move them if I had, it's, the density there all they just do is pug ground so that so we've left ourselves a little bit of uh, we've left some options. And there's some larger paddocks that by acreage, we really ought to permanently subdivide, but I've kind of decided I'm just going to leave them. It's a little bit more work. Cause when we come to them, we got to put up a bunch of pop. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But having that
1: option because you never know what the weather's going to do.
0: Yeah. I like that. I think one of the biggest challenges I feel like, well, there's not this challenge, but it's, it's a balancing act of figuring out, you know, how much adaptability do I want while also limiting how much workload do you want? Because, you know, guys like Alan, and they talk about a lot is maximum adaptability. You want as much adaptability as possible so you can manage everything differently based on the exact context of that particular year, weather pattern, soil type, you know, that's great. And I agree that in an optimum world is probably perfect. But to your point, that requires then a lot more labor. And, you know, finding this balance that gives you optimum... Uh, adaptability, while also, uh, you know, minimizing uh, uh, minimizing the labor requirements and that overhead that goes along with that, I think is probably the challenge most people are trying to figure out and it sounds like on your first shot uh you got pretty close and i, I think there's one thing to take a note out of your story as well as the uh, uh, leaning on those with more wisdom and experience than you <laughs> i think that's wise there's a lot of wisdom in that and leaning on jim and, and some of these other folks to to look over your plans that that makes a lot of sense to me so uh, congrats on what sounds like a, a good good shot a uh, first shot at this
1: well thank you and you know, we, again, we learned a lot along the way and I am thankful that we did kind of go slow. I mean, it seems yeah. fast now yeah. that I was one of Jim's, uh, and his piece of advice. Cause I kind of have, I have two units there. They're just a County road across. So I, I can graze them together. Yes. But I gym, should I, should I, um, just, you know, go slow on the whole thing or should I just concentrate on one unit and build it out and be completely done? And he kind of said, you know, maybe you ought to take one and build it out the way you think, the way you've designed. And if you make a couple of mistakes, you can immediately correct those on the next one and then maybe go, you know, or not correct them, but you can change your design in the beginning so that the next time um, you won't make those mistakes and then you hopefully can go back and just make a few adjustments on the original one. And that's kind of what we did. And like, here's an example. And I think, I think this is a good piece of advice for listeners who want to get into grazing. I put up two strand high tensile because I was convinced, oh, we're not going to respect it. And the calves weren't going to respect it. And and I, I was worried. I had a lot of links and I wanted it to be hot. And I want, I want a big charger and, a lot, and two wires. And so the first unit with all the major divisions with two wires. And you know what? The cows will respect the wire. That's not the problem. calves better, and they they don't have the ability to really learn right away. And on two wires, they'll just bumble through the two wires and then be on the wrong side, and then won't come back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how they learn immediately once they're on the wrong side, (laughs) then they won't go back again.
1: Okay. But on one wire, the calf walks under the wire, never touches it, does whatever it wants to do. And then walks back to the cow.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so after a few months, all we did was two wires, not the way to go. And we just took the second wire down, Mm -hmm. hooked it onto a four, drug it to the new unit, Right across the road, you know, we didn't wire. All we did was move it. We untied yeah. it and moved it. Everything to one wire, and it's worked out so much better. The only place we have more than one wire is a few, uh, a few stretches of fence that are kind of leading up to the corral. Sure. I go, I go to three wire. I yeah, think two sure. wire is almost. If you go three wire and put your posts a little closer together, it's just a visual thing that cattle can see it. And when you're getting a little tighter and maybe got a little more pressure leading up to the corral, it keeps the calves maybe from bumbling through and getting on the wrong side, or it certainly reduces.
0: That's that's great advice. I like that, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I, the 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 other kind of cool thing about one wire two is almost. I don't know, it's kind of like giving your calves the opportunity to creep feed a little bit as well. If you've got somewhat of a high stock density grazing situation, the calves can get ahead and not have to do competing with those cows. That's kind of like a leader follower scenario almost where the calves can get up and eat the good stuff and the cows are you know competing with each other in the paddock behind.
1: That is exactly what happens. The, hmm. We call it front graze. The calves will learn to front graze and I am perfectly happy with them. My goal is to get a grass, I mean to get a calf off milk and on grass. I want my calves to be amazing and gaining weight from grass, and just let that milk be a supplement, not not their diet. And they certainly will. And I'll also say uh, that one wire gives you the ability to lift. You know, that was something we learned last summer. You know i I don't. I, I have gates through all the main divisions but you basically have to graze in order and I, and I have a corral system on the property and then two miles away I can cross the road and go to another corral system. Well, if the cows are in the middle and you, you need to do something well, what are we going to do? Well, I guess we better graze them all the way up and, and, and all the way around and go around the other side. So finally I said no we're going to teach these cows how to go under a wire mm-hmm. and with one wire was lifted you can teach the cows to go under the wire yeah after about the second time yeah so I can cut I can cut the corners and go directly where I want to go without having to put a hundred additional yep. gates yes you can make a gate anywhere
0: yep that i think that's that's a really good point as well i've heard multiple people we haven't gotten that figured out yet with the lifting wires but a lot of people say how advantageous that is is you know gates are where the mud is every time or where they red up stuff and where you can make any unlimited number of gates when you can lift the wire anywhere and move them that's that's a phenomenal perk so we built a two-piece pvc pipe yes
1: it's eight feet tall but it's in two pieces. So it fits in the back of the, of the ATV. And then you you untie two clips. You lift the wire up and set that on the timeless post. The timeless post is at 36 feet. You've got, eight, nine, you've got 11 feet high. And the, the width is 200 feet because our posts are 100 feet apart. So it's 200 feet wide and it's 11 feet tall. I can even drive. I could technically drive a tractor with a bale of hay underneath it if I needed. Like the other day, I did drive a truck with a cube wagon on some new cattle that uh, we were kind of doing it for the first time, and we just drove the truck with the cube wagon and Hmm. rang them up, and they Mm -hmm. got under the wire. (laughs) A couple of people behind us.
0: Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Cool man is there anything else on the grazing side i'm trying to think uh so you talked about fence you talked did you you talked about water you got your water running across um daily moves back grazing winter trying to think what other questions on the grazing management i guess so residue uh what are you what's your ideal as far as what you're leaving what you're taking uh can you get a uniform grazing is your grass species pretty diverse uh and that they're picking one species over another, or can you kind of manage for a, an even grazing distribution or yeah. Talk about that a bit.
1: I would say this, So this grazing season was probably the best example of being organized, having decent density, having consistency. So we've really got, I mean, we have two full grazing seasons under our belt in, in three winters, but this one was really more organized. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, not have enough diversity. We are not getting an even enough graze. We have also the two the two growing seasons that since I have been the system's been in place and we've got some knowledge and and you know got a fair shot at working at it have been two of the driest years we've had on record. Re- you know record drought. It, it, so there's a wild card in there. I've never gotten to graze an average grazing season sure. uh, under this. Yeah. But to answer your question, especially in the early spring this year, we were able to quote unquote, grow the grass up. Okay. We have enough paddocks to provide anywhere from 50 to 60 days rest on the first, first turn. And that was my goal was to graze fast starting in March. Mm-hmm. And still give about 50 days' rest and then I wanted to increase density, slow the cattle down and get that density up closer to 75 80 thousand pounds. And then that actually uh, gives us uh, over 150 days rest, which is way more than we need. I, I actually didn't have quite enough cattle for an okay. average year this year. Sure. Sure. Good because we didn't have it here. Uh, but to answer your question, we were able to graze the grass up on the sure. first rotation. Yeah. In other words, when I came back around, I was taller than it was when we were there the first time. Then the drought hit, and we just went in, kind of went into survival mode, and we slowed everything down. And I let them take it down, probably to about four inches. Okay. Uh, we just treaded water, and then I also. What what saves us here is I graze crop after that. Okay. I some of my land, my row crop ground, I do not operate. I lease to tenants. So mm-hmm. as soon as the corn is out, or and even the cotton, we graze cotton after that. That saved us this year because there was pretty good crabgrass and and, and obviously the corn stalks. Mm-hmm. About the time it was getting desperate in August, we were able to go into the crop after that. Even though it set stock, it still bought me 45 more grazing days. Yep. So we had to move, them, we had to drive, we drove them uh, two miles across an FM road, had a had, uh, sheriff's deputy stopping traffic for us. Mm-hmm. But we just did everything we had to keep the cattle grazing and give our regular units as much rest as possible. Yeah. We finally did get some rain, and I think it paid off. Mm-hmm. The, the grass is standing back up, but we're back grazing daily moves and mm-hmm. i think close to making it through the winter with no hay we might have to feed some late but i think we're going to make it at least into february without hay
0: wow wow oh, that's awesome that is awesome cool it's so early in your your kind of journey on this and you're already finding success from it i love it that's super cool I think that might be a good place to start to to wrap up today. I know there's going to be a ton more that we could talk about, but uh but I uh um I think that's a good place to end here today with, with those. Uh is there anything I guess over our big big thoughts I guess that maybe you wanna you wanna share before I uh before we do wrap up.
1: The only thing that I could maybe add, I just had a couple of things that uh um you know, when I was kind of preparing for the podcast, I thought were important. Yeah. Uh, there, there are good and bad cattle in every breed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I am not. And the more that I have, more I've learned and the more I've observed and the, and the more I've really gotten uh, into this, I, I really believe that. There are good and bad animals in every breed. There is no magic bullet. Yeah. Now, I'm going to breed this breed. And it, I'm going to get these kind of traits, and I'm going to I'm going to have this crossbreed. You've got to find the best animals, and you've got to find the cattle that are adapted to your zip code,
2: yeah.
1: your environment. And you've got to be able to assess and be objective about what your environment is, and and that's a lesson I'm learning. I I've, I'm coming to the realization that I have a little bit harsher environment. In a little tougher environment than I thought I did,
2: sure. and
1: that's part of the reason why I'm beginning to change the, 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 change the genetics and change the cattle and change the management and the epigenetics, mm-hmm. that go along, and and uh, I'll say this, what my what my goal is is to work in God's perfect system. Mm-hmm. God created the natural process for these yeah. animals and these plants to coexist, and we as humans, I feel, have uh, felt like we are smarter than God and that we know better. And we have made changes over the decades to try to force these cattle and change these cattle and change these plants. And We just need to get back to you know, managing and grazing as close to that, that natural process that God created. I yeah. think that's where we're going to find best profit and our best uh, our best results all around for the soil, for the animals, and for us as owners and managers.
0: Yeah, man, I can't disagree with you a bit on that. That's, I that's what I always think too when I look at it, it's like, man, God had it figured out. It's funny how we managed to mess things up. <laughs> no, I can't we do more of it, more like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the key is to, to just to find out. Um, how we can mimic that that natural process? We have constraints today that our ancestors may not had. Yeah. This this land here at the turn of the century, 19, the turn of the previous century, was still basically an open range situation, and and private property rights, and fences, and uh, everything that I I completely hold dear about our American system. Everyone has their uh, right to own property and do with it as they will. But um, those fences yeah. have changed the yeah. ecology yeah. and changed uh, the, the natural habits and prevented animals from uh, doing what they could have if they were still, quote unquote, in the lot.
0: Yeah, well, I agree. And that's where I Now what people's idea of conservation, (laughs) we're getting into a whole nother train of thought that that could could go a while, but where people's thoughts on like conservation is almost to remove human interaction. Well, it will never go back to where it was, like you said, because the biggest roads and property lines, fences, you know, I have... 340 acres contiguous track here on our home farm and we could step away completely leave and it will never look like it did when there were tens of thousands of acres of open grassland and you know all these diverse wildlife species that are able to interact properly we can't accomplish the scale that is required for a completely natural ecosystem that is never going to come back uh, most likely so the only thing we can do is try to mimic it with modern technologies and try to follow what he had designed we can't let it go back to it, it won't go back to the way it was but but that's kind of uh that's just the uh reality of of the world we live in so
1: i agree 100 percent. we just have to close as is uh, feasibly possible
0: yes yeah yep exactly man but conversation bigger conversation for another day <laughs> uh two questions i want to ask you to to wrap up here. Um, one, uh, what are like two, three, four recommendations, resource recommendations? That can be anything from a conference, book, podcast that had been important in your learning journey here over the last few years that you think are important people check out if they're they're trying to do the same.
1: I, I would say that I got a lot of benefit from Soil Health Academy. Uh, anything that uh, Understanding Ag has, check out the Understanding Ag website look uh at their philosophies look at their videos uh look at a potential class or workshop uh, that might be uh i mean they're very diverse in in, in their in their workshops everything you know row crops yeah. dairy beef it's not just it's, it's not just pertaining to to beef I mean, yeah uh, corn, open, uh you know yeah. uh, multi-species they, they they cover a, a pretty wide swath. Um, ranching for profit, I definitely recommend the grass-fed exchange conference. I, I I got a lot out of that. Those those are good. If it especially if it comes to your area. I mean, yeah, a couple of years ago it came to Fort Worth, and I just thought probably not gonna come any closer. <laughs> I, I don't do grass fed beef. I, I I it's that that's not just what it's about. No. Someday I would like. I'm not doing it today, but it's so much more than that. Yeah. yeah. And it's a lot, a lot. Of,
0: and I, I got, a lot, I got a lot out of the grass. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good recommendation. Um, last question then is just, if people want to learn more, reach out. They, they've been, you know, inspired by your story. How did, how would you, uh, you know, encourage people to, to reach out or find more information?
1: You're welcome to email me, Minky at gmail.com. Awesome. I'm happy to share with anybody. You you can look you can see our our website is MinkyHay is for But uh, <laughs> there's really not anything about grazing the cattle on that. But if if, <laughs> if you're interested in our horse quality square belt, you can uh, you can look at us up at MinkyHay is for and you can okay. and you can email me through the contact us uh, site there. But it's easier just. Matthew K Mickey
0: at Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This is this is awesome. I, I love what you're doing. I enjoyed following your your story here today and learning more about it. Uh, um, we'll definitely have to get you on again if that's something you're open to doing to kind of just kind of hear how uh, how the the story progresses. But I appreciate you coming on today and, and sharing your uh, your wrecks, uh, your your experience, and your your learning opportunities. So thank you
1: it's my pleasure jared and i i want to also say that your your podcast uh is an excellent resource and i've been listening to it since you first started Mm -hmm. and uh i know it has got to be difficult i know you spend a lot of time on it it's it's very well produced and i just want to uh encourage you to keep doing it and uh you're 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 just putting out a quality product so keep, keep up the good work
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company. His mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.